Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Dr. Howard C. Stevenson is quite a busy person who I feel very privileged that we could get a few minutes of his time. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He actually is a nationally recognized clinical psychologist and researcher on negotiating racial conflicts, as well as a Constance Clayton Professor of Urban Education, Professor of African Studies, and he's also the director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative and the director of Forward Promise, which provides support to organizations that are helping young boys and men of color heal from discrimination trauma. And he's got so much to offer us in how our own racial literacy and having conversations about race help us connect with one another. Please check out the show notes for more information on Dr. Stevenson's work and links to some of his trainings. And I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Dr. Howard C. Stevenson from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Howard Stevenson, I am really inspired by your work and the work that you're doing at the Racial Empowerment Collaborative. And my hope is that by our dialogue today, what it does is it serves the 7,000 listeners at Sidewalk Talk and then people that don't participate to widen their embrace to more and more people. So I wanted to just thank you for being here and ask you, what ultimately started you on your path? Tell us a little bit about who you are as a human before you're an educator and what started you down the path that you're on today. Um, thank you, Tracy, and it's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for the opportunity. Um, I would say growing up in the family that I grew up in um, and having two parents who were vastly different from each other, both African-American, but both um, the youngest in their families growing up and sort of a, a, a zest to be making a difference in the world. They each had different styles about how you navigate conflict and particularly racial conflict. So I grew up in a family that had different styles of dealing with racism. And that, that coded and influenced a lot of the work that I do now. Um, a big deal growing up in the Southern Delaware, very rural country areas that you never think that you're better than somebody else. And the moment that you do that, and the moment that you forget where you came from, or the moment that you forget who your people are, you are going to get sick. It's not healthy. And that, um, it doesn't really matter what you accomplish, it's about who you're connected to. And so um, it wouldn't matter how famous we get, how many degrees we get, my family, my brother and sister, 
um, it really more depends on do you have you forgotten where you came from and do you remember you know who you are connected to so um, you know village means something family means something community means something so I would argue that you know uh, we grew up in an impoverished community that didn't understand the politics of the world getting through college but that's what really I would say that and faith would be uh, the things that got me got me to where I'm doing now. I think that's a really beautiful backdrop to kind of bring us into kind of what shaped you because that's certainly not the model that we live in today and that's certainly not the model of our politics or our economics to remember where you came from. It, there seems to be this promotion of striving to be better all the time. Yes, and I think that um, you know, when you have to share resources with other people, um, I, I'm, I'm in writing about our growing up, one of the things my father used to do when we would go into the store and, and we had a car, not everybody in our neighborhood had a car, we would see folks uh, walking uh, to go five miles to get to the grocery store. And my father would pick them up. And so going to grocery shopping could take hours because you really, you have people that you're taking with you you're not sure when you're going to come home, but, but part of other people's living and your living is dependent on how you treat others. It's, it's, a, it's a necessity, not simply an, an interest. And so, um, you know, if you, if you wanted to get chastised, you disrespect another person in our community and you would feel it. And it would come not just from your family, but it comes from yeah. other people in the neighborhood as well. So there's this shared space that you were in and this belief system that had you really look out for one another, even if it meant sacrificing something of your own time and beingness, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And um, in our time conscious world now, some of that is unheard of because you, you really have to get some other place and be some other place. You don't have time to take care of other people's needs or be, you know, be sort of uh, beholding to how their life might Take time, take too much time, or, you know, take you off course. Well, I think that's a nice segue into some of the work that you're doing around educating people. In a way, I hear the link between your teaching of how people can navigate racially stressful encounters and their own racial literacy as another offering of time and care. And so I wanted to hear a little bit more about what you've seen change over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years on how we're navigating racially stressful encounters for the better and for the worse, and why you're on a mission to do this. Yes, yeah, so thank you. I mean, I feel like we have grown up, and I grew up in the 60s, where the politics of race were moral and, we, and, and faith-based and an expectation from others to be human um, through a morality framework. That is that, you know, if you really believe in these ideas of America, if you really believe in um, everybody um, is human, then you have to match um, your, your walk with your talk. You've got to match your behavior with the, with the legal framework. And a lot of our solutions to racial inequity and and violence was to 
hold people accountable through the law. And I think we grew up that way. We expected the law, um, the country, the democracy to be able to play itself out and live up to its highest ideas. And I think um, since, the, since the clashing of the 60s, people were in love with the idea of love. That is, we held people to the accountability of democracy and what it meant, and, and laws came from it. But I do believe that um, the ideas of democracy are different than the actual um, practice. And that is the idea of love. I think we're in love with the idea of love, but actual loving people, actually humanizing people, actually being human towards them is a very different process. So what I see today, and especially in the last five years, but I don't think it started in the last five years, is, that, is, it, is, is the sort of thrust to be okay at dehumanizing others. That other people are not as good as us, they're not as smart as us, they're not as pretty as us, they're not as uh, human as us. And that has been, that is a, that is a historical um, four centuries reality in this country. We started from a framework that we were better than other people. And I think now morality doesn't mean as much. We define morality in so many different ways now that you can't use simply morality as the reason why you will do the good thing or treat people human. Because some people define humanity and faith um, with definitions of it's okay to dehumanize other people at the border. They're not like us, they don't belong to us, their children are not really children. So we can do whatever we want to to those people who are not human as us or not as human including violence, including withholding resources, withholding food. And so I think now we have to take racial matters in a very different frame. We have to know how to navigate a dehumanizing um, context where racism is absolutely okay. And so racial stress then becomes much more um, visible and more uh, visceral and it's engaged in public speech, sidewalk, facial moments. Moments are as important as uh, legal. And so I don't think the legal frame is as useful now. And I think we need a, a more humanizing frame to understand how to navigate racial, racism and racially stressful moments. So I'm really hearing the shift, that there was this moral code that, and this belief that our systems combined with our drive for a loving morality of humanizing one another were the things that kind of held us accountable. But now as we, it's almost like it's more deeply embedded in our psyches that it's okay to use people and treat them as inhumane objects for our own means that we're gonna have to come up with new tactics. Am I hearing you right? Absolutely. Um, and if you look at our history, and the history of treating black people as less than human in the constitution. If you look at the, the practices of enslavement of very different groups of, of the way in which uh, native children and families uh, were decimated, um, but also sent to schools to dehumanize their culture. We have a history of dehumanization in this country that's very core to who, how we define ourselves. So it's not an, new reality. It's an, an access of an old identity that, that is really what we could consider America. But um, the idea that um, 
we, it affects our lives, it affects our, our relationships, it affects our work, and it affects our families, I think, is unquestionable. So we are foundations in this particular country on a history of thinking that we're better and dehumanizing people. And that's in our DNA, goes all the way back to the beginning since since really since the way we treated indigenous people when we got here and then the slave trade and on and on and on. Yes. What do we do? Because that the healing, I mean, there's one thing about now what I do in my life, but the roots of that as I think about my work as a psychotherapist, bringing people to consciousness is a long freaking project. Yes. Um, and I do think, you know, from my own background growing up where you, it's important that you not see yourself as better than anyone else mm -hmm. um, and everybody has has something to contribute we use um an, an african proverb called the lion's story will never be known as long as the hunter is the one to tell it mm -hmm. and in that frame we believe everybody's story is important I, I think one thing we can do is that we recognize that narrative of hate and supremacy says um, some stories, our stories are important, your story is not. And so we will create a story about you that we like better, that puts us in charge of you, puts us better than you. And I would say any way that we can challenge that narrative, that, that's one thing we can do. Can we challenge the narrative of, I'm better than you? Another thing we can do, and we can see that not only in news, we can see that in relationships and face-to-face -face encounters, how we raise our children. Another sort of proverb we use, you know, we always used to say, um, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, a healthy child. But we've been saying, um, even if that's the case, what does it take to raise a healthy village? And so going back to my upbringing, the idea that you always forget, I mean, you always remember where you came from, you don't forget where you came from, um, and, and is a way of recognizing cultural values, cultural ways of living um, that, that we're affirming. And how do you go back and recreate or bring those strategies and skills to what's happening today? So we have historical cultural strengths that we can use. And everybody's story, I think, has to go, go backwards first to reach and understand who, who I am, who is my village, who are my people, and how can I bring those values to today's crazy world. And um, I think um, we can also do something regarding um, every moment. So the work that we do, it considers that even a face-to-face -face encounter in less than two minutes could change your life. We know this in police youth encounters, we know this in parent-child, teacher-student encounters, it doesn't take long for somebody to be threatened around a racial moment. And so we try to prepare young people and adults for how do you bring your best self, be fully present in those moments and walk away healthy and whole. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a strategy for that, but those are just a few of the ideas. Um, there's, there's something really, I just want to ref reflect. I'm also mindful that I'm a person of privilege and white. And so I'm, choosing to follow your storytelling 
to privilege the stories that you tell. And so I just want to model for those that are listening, this is how we do it at Sidewalk Talk. I'm trying to be mindful of not driving the questions, but follow you as I'm listening. Mm -hmm. And as, I, as I'm hearing you, I really hear this, this notion in that first point. You said, you know, the lion story will never be known as long as the hunter is in charge of it. And then what I hear you saying is we have to be mindful of who's telling the stories in our villages or what villages are represented and not. And then there's this beautiful thing that feels really new to me, Dr. Stevenson, when, that I don't know, has an impact on me. So, you know, we have to go back and look at, in order to raise healthy villages and communities, where we come from. And we have to find to our villages and bring those values forward because mm -hmm. it's from those values. I almost got a heart-centeredness to it. There's, that's, that's where the love lives, is in that knowingness of our values. And I don't think we do that right now. We're all on social media creating personal brands and it's all about self, self, self. Right. So I'm, I'm right. really touched by, by both of these points. Um, am I getting, am I kind of getting at the crux of what you were sharing there? Absolutely. Um, and, and I think I would even add another piece that, yes, you've got it very accurately, um, is, and this is true for all of us, that we all have a village at some point. We didn't do us, us by ourselves. We didn't become us by ourselves. So going back allows us to say, who is my village? And so that means you also have a story. And the question is, we say to folks who are struggling or folks who are privileged, what is your story? You know, even... You know, and, and it's, it's important to support the other narratives that aren't in the space. But it's also true um, what we do with folks as we think of moments. What do you notice about yourself when you're listening to another person's story? What do you notice about uh, your thoughts? Uh, what are your thoughts doing? What are, your, what, is, what are your emotions are you having during the storytelling that you're listening to? And what do you feel in your body? And, and we call this calculate locate, communicate, breathe, and exhale. Calculate would be what feeling are you having right now if you're listening to someone's story? Uh, what, and locate is where in your body do you feel it? And be specific. Communicate is what self-talk is going on and what uh, images are coming to mind as you hear my story or as you're telling your own story. And I think in the racial conundrum of the world, um, people of color also want white people to share their stories and their narratives and not be on the sideline while also support and get support for those narratives, whether they're full of shame or triumph. We think all Sankofan journeys back into our past are going to have shame, but also strategies to navigate that shame if you look deep enough. And so we're all, we all have a story. What do you notice about yourself when you're engaged in your own narrative, when you're engaged in somebody else's narrative? And that's a, that's a way we think of racial literacy, that you begin to read what's going on, not only with the world outside, but you. What's happening with you? Mm -hmm. And so I want to just make sure I got this, this piece. What I'm what I'm hearing you say, well, first of all, thank you for bringing in the body, because I think that if we can't locate what's happening in our, in our physiology, that's when things get even more stressful, because then it's hard to soothe whatever discomforts are arising. And then I, th I think that's when the storytelling can sort of go offline, and, and maybe something that could have been healing becomes 
potentially more painful, right? Right. Um, but I'm hearing there, there's a way in which finding a way for folks that are of all different races and identities and backgrounds to come together and create an equal space is a real challenge because maybe some folks don't want to hear somebody else's story. Right. Or maybe they think they already know the story. Yet I'm hearing you say, well, actually, I mean, get me, help me understand if I'm getting you right. You're saying, look, you got to know your own story. And that'll also, I almost hear you saying, if you start to really indict and investigate your own story of where you come from, that will make you more curious about other people's stories. Was I, was I, am I getting that right? Yes, absolutely. And, and partly because we all are at risk and, you know, you and I are both psychotherapists. So we, you know, there is in our work a certain humbling, I would argue, holy ground where people are sharing with us the most intimate things in their lives. But it could be without hum humanity, it could be voyeurism, right? We could be simply watching mm. um, other people struggle or grow or whatever. And that's a, that's a particular space of power. And I would argue that um, it's hard to, to talk about humanity. You have to be human. In some respects, that means sharing that's what sharing your own story does. And, and I think people would, in, in a lot of the racial debates or world engagements, people are often threatened by other people's narratives. Um, so if you're able to talk about your culture and I'm not, I'm afraid I may not have leverage in that relationship. And so we, we borrow uh, stereotypes, I think, um, supremacy narratives in order to protect ourselves from feeling inferior in these face-to-face -face moments. And that's why the sidewalk is a beautiful place. Or the, that we only have a, an encounter. We think of encounters as very powerful because, but if you share your story, your body, the body person of the other person shifts immediately. It's almost biochemical that um, if you share a story with me, you're inviting me into your life. Even if I could be an enemy in your story, it, it changes mm -hmm. the nature of how it is human in its core. If you're mm -hmm. going to be vulnerable, then um, expect me to also be vulnerable. So um, I would argue that it's spiritual as much as it is strategic to share and know your own story. Um, it's, it's, it's an act of humanity in and of itself. Um, and then I think we can define, you know, what's, what's possible between us. Well, the therapist in me is going to have a hard time not going deeper into this voyeurism piece because I, I, I still, you know, so what I'm hearing you say is touching on this idea of self-disclosure in, inside of the therapy room. And I'm curious to hear what you think about that. So for those listening that aren't therapists, what that means is how much does a therapist share about their own story with clients? And two things that have touched me recently, I have an African-American friend and she said, man, Tracy, I want to find a therapist like you that just talks normal. <laughs> she said, I always go and they, they scratch their chin and I feel like they're analyzing me. And I said, yeah, I don't do that. And she goes, I know, but she goes, I think there's something really yucky about that. And I don't like it. And I said, yeah, I, I, I get, I get it. Um, and then more recently I had a, a, a white male colleague say to me that, therapy in and of itself is a racist phenomenon because of the power dynamic. 
and um, which I, I guess I have a hard time with monolithic statements like that, but yeah. you're bringing up something so important. You're talking about power in our storytelling and you're talking about power in the therapy room. And I'm just curious how your work sort of creating more racial literacy for people has informed how you show up as a therapist. Does it mean that you self-disclose more or you share more about your life or talk about yourself? Absolutely. Um, and, and I think, you know, you've written about the, the issues of the racial dynamics in psychotherapy, actually, that actually trigger for folks of color often, but not only folks of color. Um, am, I, am I going to be misused since I have given up the power to this other person? And I think it's, it, you can, we can track it in the ways in which, you know, in transcripts of psychotherapy sessions, and we've done this in family therapy as well as individual therapy. And it's not just counter-transference or transference, it's the idea that we are recreating a particular script here. Um, and if the therapist is also afraid to talk about race or bold to talk about race, it's the sort of, um, the power dimension is undeniable. And so it's another elephant in the room, if you can imagine. And when, when you know, we are trained when people question that, <laughs> do not be vulnerable. And I would argue that that, that dehumanizes the process of a sense. I wouldn't go so strong as, as if it is dehumanized. It is a dehumanizing process. I think we're triggered to remember other moments in which we have given power to people and they have misused it. So, but I do think in the same way uh, in our work, the reason we use that line story proverb is that we start most engagements with a story, not with facts, because we want to um, allow people to eventually share their story. And that's where healing is going to take place. I don't think we're going to get to racially stressful moments or racism in our society. And this, you know, we've learned this from our, our native colleagues um, who tell stories um, and do healing circles, right? And get to the same, if not further, outcomes in young people and families that we want as psychotherapists because of engaging these indigenous strategies uh, around storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think we can get more without that, with that power dimension being challenged, at least directly. Mm -hmm. um, and those are, you know, different between Western and Eastern and African understandings of, of healing. But um, where we leave things is we say, you know, our job is to, in our work, uh, our job is to help you fall in love with your own story. But that means we also have to appreciate our own. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, you know, I was at a Chicago, I was at a school in Chicago, 7.30 in the morning, working with fifth graders. And I mm -hmm. did the calculate, locate, communicate, breathe, and exhale after I told my story. And one of the calculate, locate, before I could get to communicate, one of the fifth graders, uh, girls said, um, I'm angry at a nine. She was calculating um, and how intense her feelings were. I'm angry at a nine. Um, that I'm the only Native American girl in this school. And she located, she said, I can feel it in my stomach. It's like a bunch of butterflies fighting with each other, so much so that they fly up into my throat and choke me. Mm -hmm. And so she was very clear about what racism for her felt like and what it meant. And, how, and she could clearly in seconds say, here's 
where it affects me on a daily basis. Here's how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, that's storytelling too. Mm-hmm. But, but her willingness to be vulnerable in that space with about 60 young people um, is the kind of stuff you're talking about regarding sidewalk connections and humanity. Um, that kind of risk-taking requires other people to do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I, the story is just alive in me as you tell it. I, I have this fantasy of hearing story after story because I think kids get to the heart of it better than sometimes we grown-ups do. And, and there's yes. just something so beautiful about the way she articulates that. Yeah. Um, two more questions. Mm-hmm. You keep using the word storytelling. And I've, this, is, this is a buzzword now. So I want to make sure I am clear that I understand what you mean, because you said there's a difference between collecting facts and sharing a story. What is a story in your mind? The, the story, um, in my view, um, and I think there's you know research on how the brain responds to stories versus mm-hmm. facts. You know, there's a way in which um, a story triggers you know oxytocin, for example, in your in your body that says to the rest of you, it's okay to come out of the closet or it's okay to come out. And, and it's an inviting chemical in a sense that says, if I hear a story from someone, I have the potential to not just be the antagonist in that story, I could be a hero as well. I have options. Mm-hmm. So a story um, basically, um, balances out the playing field, levels it out. And, and in many times, particularly around racial matters, we are considered to be either the slave or the slave master. And I think um, storytelling allows you to be intention about the potential that I could be the enemy, but there's also room for me to insert myself. Mm-hmm. And how the storyteller opens that and shares their narrative, I think the more human they are, the more they're saying, uh, this isn't just about me. You can come and play with me if you'd like. Mm. And I think facts put us into a position of stuff I don't know. And are you going to think about me in a particular way? And how do I then gain power so I'm not inferior in this moment? Oh, I get it. Okay, so what I hear you saying is that storytelling removes that layer of power. It begins to, yes. And it begins I to. You could also begin to use your story as a battering ram, right? Sure. So, so the question is, how long, how, what is the entire experience like as I hear you share your story? And it's not uncommon in our work for people, obviously, to be afraid as they're telling a the story and see their vulnerability, you know, cry, pull back. But the questions that we're trying to raise, do you notice it? You notice how you, you went into the deep end, you notice how you ran, you notice how you shook. You notice how other memories came in. If you can notice what's happening to you, you are also being human in that space. Mm. And can and you admit that... to what you notice, right? Can you share what you notice? Mm-hmm. Part mm-hmm. of the learning and growth that other people can borrow from. Mm-hmm. And that's where liberation lies, right? When we can reclaim our humanity and then everybody else's. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Mm. Well, I appreciate all of this time, and this is where I turn the floor over to you. We have a bit of a tradition when we have guests on. I get out of the way and I let you speak directly to our 7,000 volunteers around the world. Either a, a word of wisdom 
or a wish directly to them as a way to close our conversation? Well, I would say um, I wish for everyone to fall in love with their own story, their own narrative. And um, I think that, um, you know, our work is trying to help people. My brother did a wonderful job, Brian Stevenson, um, he's a lawyer and advocate. He wrote a book called Just Mercy. He talks about, you know, four things we have to do. And it includes, you know, with sort of, you know, get proximal to people, right? And change the narrative of supremacy and hate um, to be hopeful and stay hopeful and then finally be uncomfortable um, or comfortable with uncomfortability. And, and the work that we're doing to add to that is to say, you know, some people have a hard time doing those things. Um, but it, I think storytelling and falling in love with your own narrative is one way to begin to appreciate how to get proximal to people who are seriously in need, but who are still our brothers and our sisters and our family. And that to, to sit in, in the middle of that stress of the uncomfortability is, can be a healing space. But I believe it begins with you falling in love with your own narrative. Mm. Yeah. I wish that for everybody. Dr. Howard Stevenson, this was, thank you. This was generous to offer your time to us so that we can do a better job in our becoming close and proximal to others on the sidewalk. And I appreciate the work that you do in the world and for being here with us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. Jay. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.